Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me is my co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. And I am Mark Bigney. Solidarity, Walker. Solidarity. Happy Labor Day. We asked our listeners through our Patreon Discord if we could have Labor Day off, and they said, and I'm, I think, accurately paraphrasing, that our suffering gives them sucker, and that the only release we could have is the sweet release of death when they give us permission to die. Hopefully soon. And thus... We must provide you another episode here this week. We don't take days off here at So Very Robot Games, except for the cases in which we do. So, so we're going to talk about games this week. We're going to talk about the game we reviewed a year ago, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, The Eurus. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And finally, we're going to have our topic of the week. Our topic of the week is efficiency euros. This is a term that I've been throwing around for a few months now. Some people are curious about what it means. We're going to talk about what it means and what we think about games of that ilk. So, Walker, what did we review last year? Uh, one year ago, Mark, we reviewed a game called Dogs of War. Back, what? way Why back in episode wait? 151. Why did we wait that long to review I, it, though? That's what I was wondering when, when I looked at it. I said, we waited 151 episodes to review Dogs of War. I have to imagine that it was partially due to the doldrums of COVID that we were looking for relief. I remember the first game we did after Nemesis. Like, we did Nemesis, and it's like, oh, this is nightmarish. Gaming on Tabletop Simulator. Oh. And we went straight to Undaunted, which was like a blessed release. Maybe that was going on? Maybe. Anyway, Dogs of War, one of the perennial favorites here at Swag, the Paolo Mori worker placement game. We talked about it with high praise during our discussion of Simon as an example of the rare times when they knew how to take a Euro design and bling it up appropriately without losing sight of functionality or practicality. And, and giving it a little bit of style at the same time. Absolutely. Very stylish game. I think it was the first game that really made me fall in love with Paolo Mori. Before that, I'd enjoyed some of Palomori, but Dogs of War was really the design where it made me sit up and uh, take notice. And it really is a game apart from many others. Like, there's not not many other games like it. It's true. It's true. That kind of directly confrontational potential for backstabby worker placement affair, while at the same time having a lot of the same sto- sto- same solid appeals of worker placement in terms of resource manipulation. Really good design. Shame it's out of print. Well, maybe one day you'll be back. We can only hope. Who knows? Well, I got mine. I don't care about anybody else. Yikes. 
<laughs> so that's Dogs of War by Paolo Mori, one of our favorite worker placement games. A game we reviewed exactly one year ago. Now on to the games we played this week. Mark, what did you play this week? I got to play Cosmic Frog. And very glad that I did. This was a five-player free-for-all, all with new players. And roughly around, two, by around round two or three, people were giggling and saying, well, I guess I'm going to smack somebody around a little bit. <laughs> and sure enough, much smacking was had, much violence, much spite, much retribution. And it was great. I mean, just setting out the, the, the universe, people were already intrigued, people marveling at the card art. It, it's great to be able to share something like Cosmic Frog with a broader audience. Yeah, you tell them, you show them how nice the art is and then let them know that they're going to be woofing down hordes of fragments of planets and then into their gullet and, and then, then disgorging then, it into their vault. Dis, yes. Not enough games use gullet or disgorge. I, I agree. 100%. I, not even Hungry Hungry Hippos really does. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, we've spent a lot of time talking about Cosmic Frog and the designer Jim Felly, also in the context of his most recent release, The Mirroring of Mary King. If you haven't played any of Jim Felly's designs, I would encourage you to seek out some of his recent stuff because I think lately he's been going from strength to strength. Cosmic Frog, as you may recall, was our game of the year of 2020. I do not regret that appellation in the slightest. And it was great to return to it. It always seems to teeter on the brink of utter catastrophe, just as a game. You know, it seems more fragile than it is, precisely because of the fact that you can direct your aggression against almost anybody. But the scoring is sufficiently transparent, and the incentives, I think, are properly calibrated, and the design work is there, such that you don't end up with the kinds of disasters that you might think you're on the verge on. I'm not going to claim that it's the fairest game in the world. <laughs> Certainly not. I'm not going to say that it's not subject to arbitrary swings of fate, because it absolutely is. But in its ilk, namely the free-for-all, you can attack anybody, everyone against anyone. Now, you can play with Team Variant, of course, and it's solid as well. But in the standard configuration with five odd numbers of players, it is a free-for-all. This is a style that's been attempted many, 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 many times before, and usually an utter failure. And Cosmic Frog is absolutely one of those exceptions. Huge fan of Cosmic Frog. Jim Felly, Devious Weasel Games. So did the newer players sort of catch on on who was sort of in the lead and gang up on them and, and beat them to a pulp, I hope? <laughs> the player who was in the lead most of the time managed to keep themselves in a position where they were not vulnerable at the right instances. Uh, the attacking, generally speaking, Cosmic Frog is opportunistic in nature, and it's somebody who's pushed their luck too much. And broadly speaking, I prefer that to an undifferentiated, unmitigated whack of the leader fest, because that's not particularly satisfying. I'm not saying it's good when people gang up against people who are not winning. What I'm saying is, is that in Cosmic Frog, if you're the victim of attack, you probably done did something to deserve it. You took too many turns, you left yourself vulnerable for too much oomph, your, your power is not a combat power, and or you've been a jerk to everybody, and or you've just left yourself with a gullet full of goodies that people want to French kiss and steal. It's the nature of the game. So yes, the leader was subject to a fair number of attacks, but they were not the most targeted individual, largely because they were safe when they needed to be safe. Cosmic Frog. Cosmic Frog. I got to go back to Flotilla. This is designed by J.B. Howell and Michael Mahilsik, published out by WizKids. And it is a game very much like Concordia, where you're managing your hand. But the, what this does, which I find it a little bit better, is that all the cards are sort of in their category. So you don't, you're not subject to like a random sort of pool of cards. If you want a particular card, then you can sort of concentrate on it. And even though every card is different in those piles, you know, they're all semi the, of, a theme, of yeah. the same theme and the same sort of power. Like there's not one card that someone's going to, you know, sort of pilfer and, and run away with the game because it's not a huge, that's not the biggest part of the game. So it's a post-apocalyptic type thing. You're going out, you're delving down into the sea and you're pulling up old stuff. And then it's one of those games where you have to decide when you're going to go topside. You sort of change everything over. The cards are two-sided, so you simply turn them over. And now you're you're playing the other side, which is super cool. And then you're picking up all your tiles, and you're now you're making this water world sort of flotilla type thing, and scoring tons of points. Really enjoy flotilla. Glad I got back to it. And I was very impressed. You played with now was it three new players or two new players? Two new players. And you got finished in two hours. That's very impressive. We because did. Well, I have very short time on, 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 on local gaming night and, and the whip was out and we were going to get this done. <laughs> okay. So it was an act of discipline that got it done in the that's two hours. Right. Okay. That's fair. Flotilla. 
We're on week, I think, four-ish of Massive Darkness 2 Hellscape Watch. I keep wondering if I'm going to get bored of the thing because, you know, there's not even there's not even a lot of better designs that I'd be hap- happy to play week on week on week and never get the temptation to say, could we move on to something else? Such as the rapacious desire for variety that I possess, as well as my notoriously short attention span. What were we talking about again? Oh, right, Kant. Anyway, uh, but Massive Darkness 2 has consistently held our attention. I got to play a Berserker this time. My love for the Berserker is like a truck, and I also couldn't help but notice that the Berserker has a skill called Fatal Fury. There's Fatal Fury 1, there's Fatal Fury 2, and then there's Fatal Fury 3. Now, you might be thinking, Fatal Fury 1, that's the one where Geese finally took his final header off the building after Terry Bogart hit him with a power wave. No, actually, you'd be confused. That's real about Fatal Fury. Geese fell off at the end of Fatal Fury 1, was revealed not to be dead in Fatal Fury 3. Enough. Is it, though? It is. I think our listeners really want to hear more about SNK fighting games from the 90s. No. Okay, Massive Darkness 2 Hellscape is designed by Alex Altiano and Marco Portugal. I've continued to enjoy experimenting with new classes and indeed even just the new scenarios. The scenario design is not bad. It gives you just enough variety to keep coming back. I might actually go to the effort of liberating the campaign system from its uh, current shackles in Revere, Massachusetts, just to see if it's not terrible, which admittedly is a low bar. But given the previous Massive Darkness's campaign system, sometimes you have to manage your expectations accordingly. Anyway, that's been my continued experience with Massive Darkness 2 Hellscape. You and I got to play a tile layer called Dead and Breakfast. I didn't even get to start talking about King of Fighters. Sorry, you were saying? So a board gaming podcast about board games. <laughs> a board game called Dead and Breakfast. This was a review copy given to us by the publisher, Brain Crack Games, designed by... Rodrigo Rego. It is a bed and breakfast. The customers have a fetish for being frightened all the time. So they tell you what they like to be scared by. And so you have to put them in the room with the with the nasty spiders or the zombies. And you're trying to flood their 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 row or their corridor with, with more zombies. And I didn't think it was that that bad at all. You're getting this cool ivy that you have to try to wind through your whole your entire hotel to get you even more points. And as for a mid-tile layer, I didn't think it was too bad at all. Yeah, so it's a reasonably light drafting tile-laying game, not entirely unlike Framework, which we played recently by Uwe Rosenberg. Uh, Dead and Breakfast is definitely more charming in terms of its theme, and it works on a kind of a rondel system whereby you can draft any one of the next three tiles available, and then you replace it, and you keep going round and round and round. And there's this interesting element whereby once you finish the floor of your hotel, you're going to be building five floors of this Dead and Breakfast, as, as you, if you will, you get to take one of the customers, and it's the clients that are the scoring conditions. So rather than having the scoring conditions embedded on the tiles themselves that you're drafting, there's this kind of push to either complete your floors early if there's one that you really want available or maybe slow your roll if there isn't a good one. And there's a tension there. There's also a number of different factors on the given tiles. There's who happens to be occupying the various rooms that you're drafting as well as the ivy, as you mentioned, as well as the, as the, the, the flowers themselves. So there's just enough going on that there's an interesting little bit of puzzling and ordering consideration, but it's not so much that I feel like I'm going to get a headache like with Calico. So in terms of my own personal preferences, I think it's calibrated reasonably well. The theme isn't particularly compellingly rendered, but it's cute at least. It's enough to give you some semblance of what's going on. And so in that sense, it's a head above framework for my personal taste. And graphically, it's reasonably cute. As you say, it was surprisingly enjoyable. I was expecting very, very little from the rules explanation and from, you know, yet again, another drafting tiling game of which there's a diamond dozen. Most of them are nature-themed of late, though, of course. Cascadia and Parks and its ilk. But I found Dead and Breakfast surprisingly diverting. I thought it was a fine family weight game. Yeah, the art's by Louis Detroit. I like most of his stuff. Great little game. Dead and Breakfast. On the topic of little games, I played So You've Been Eaten. So You've Been Eaten is designed by Scott Alms, he of the Tiny Epic series. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of Scott Alms, and So You've Been Eaten is definitely in that trend. It's It was okay, but basically what it is is a zero to two player game about a miner who gets swallowed by a large beast uh, so as to harvest the crystals inside the beast. And as the beast, you're trying to use your digestive system to dissolve the miner, and as the miner, you're trying to harvest the crystals before that happens. That is, of course, unless ending number two condition applies, and that is if the miner traverses the entirety of the digestive tract and emerges out the other end. Oh, do you want to be even better? 
What's Object that? number two, he finds another miner, and they get married and have a whole life inside the beast. But then it wouldn't be a poo joke, Walker. Oh. Yeah. So the, some of the jokes I actually quite find amusing. There's an expansion that makes the uh, – that gives the beast's digestive system antacid properties. It's called the Dyspepto Beast Mall. Yikes. Some of the humor is great. Some of the humor actually got them into trouble. I, actually, during the Kickstarter campaign, their updates were very much the same tongue-in-cheek tone. Some people reacted badly to that, and that actually caused the publisher, Ludi Creations, to spontaneously and unilaterally cancel their pledges. So there's a bit of a spielkiss about that. I wasn't involved. I just watched on from the sidelines. And, of course, it's the prerogative of Kickstarter campaigns to cancel whatever pledges they want. But the unasked-for refund is definitely what we call a controversial move in the board gaming community. Anyway, I don't want to make too much of it. I played solo. I played as a miner against what's called a hibernating beast. I'm always somewhat dubious of games that claim that the minimum player count is zero because that tends to mean one of two things in my experience. One of them is, like the coin games, that it's a spreadsheet-happy design where they got a little bit too enthusiastic about making a complicated spreadsheet AI and left the actual gameplay to suffer. Or, in the case of So You've Been Eaten, there's not really much going on. And sure enough, that was the case in So You've Been Eaten. As the miner, you toss three dice, you activate three skills based on the value of the dice. There you go. That's more or less it. If you want a dice-based solo design, not that So You've Been Eaten is necessarily a solo design, uh, allow me to put another plug for Under Falling Skies, which is a fabulous campaign game in a solo box. As far as campaigns go... Uh, I have very, very high standards for campaigns because I'm somewhat tired of them. But if you're going to do a campaign, might as well make it solo. Solo campaigns are a great way to do it. And Under Falling Skies is a great solo design with a great campaign. You can go save Montreal. What else could you want? It's true. So So You've Been Eaten was fine-ish. I thought it was cute. The theme was fun. The jokes were funny. I found most of the humor pretty engaging. But the actual gameplay was very, very, very simple to the point of being simplistic, I think. I'm not particularly inclined to try it two-player because I know how unengaging the miners' actions are. And I don't think I'm particularly inclined to go try it solo beast versus an AI miner. And I, of course, am not interested in doing the pointless exercise of running two AIs against each other for whatever reason. Some people like doing that. They like running AIs against each other and see what happens. Some people run zero-player games of coin where they're just running the four AIs. That, to me, sounds a little bit like the ninth circle of hell. There was this scene, actually, in Argo, the movie about the uh, Canadian-led espionage attempt to liberate people after the Iranian Revolution, where there's a basement full of shredded documents, and you see mostly children trying to rearrange this entire floor full of shredded documents into what the, the documents actually were so they can reconstruct what American intelligence had. That, to me, I think is what perdition looks like. If there's a hell and I get there, I think that's what it's going to look like for me. I think a couple rooms past that, maybe in Purgatory, are people running solo games of coin games. And maybe a couple rooms past that, it's people running zero-player games of So You've Been Eaten. At any rate, <laughs> designed by Scott Holmes, published by Lou Creations, So You've Been Eaten. We went back to Fate Forge, which was a prototype review copy given us by the publisher Mighty Boards. And this is sort of a vengeance-style roll-the-dice fantasy with an app-driven campaign. And we breezed through it again. And we were trying to time it, but there was technical issues. Well, we were trying to time it because previously you had commented that you were, to be charitable to what you said, you were concerned about the ratio of, of gameplay time to setting up time. The setup time was around five minutes, and the scenario took us somewhere between 30 and 35. That strikes me as an eminently reasonable ratio. I suppose so. But I wish the difficulty was a little bit harder, because once again, I think we went through it fairly untouched. And I'm wondering if it's getting a little repetitive. I was, I was hoping that the enemies are going to get mixed up a little bit more, you know, a little more differentiated between, you know, what they do. Either they move or they don't, or they have one hit point or they have two. Little, it, little samey. It's funny you say that because I've actually felt that the last couple of scenarios were promising in that regard. Not necessarily as far as I would have liked. That's what I meant. They, there was, like I said, they did do a good job of doing little things that made them feel a little bit differently. But still, when it got down to it, it didn't really, on the table, really work out that way. Right. So we're not really in a position to comment too, too much in detail about the campaign elements because all of that is subject to change. And, of course, one of the glorious joys 
of the digital uh, hybrid era of board gaming is that not only do we get to test out prototype games, we also get to be subjected to uh, pre-release software, which is perhaps... Always works great. uh, Yeah, it's its own joy. But anyway... There was a scenario where the goal was to track down, a, uh, chase down a thief, and mostly what the, the thief did was run like crazy towards the exit. There was a scenario with lots of undead, where the undead were impossible to exterminate permanently, but they didn't slow you down. So these huge mobs you had to crawl through in order to get places, and you had to be very strategic about what you put down for a round, because they'll just reanimate next turn. Those Those parts I thought were cute. Now, I don't know how much... Further evolution the campaign is undergoing, but by the same token, I'm not sure how much it would need to. So I'm kind of on the fence about how much the campaign elements are adding to the overall experience. The core combat engine remains solid. It's a really, really good engine for quick, snappy combat encounters, the same way Vengeance is, the same way Roll and Fight is. I'm not sure what it is that I want out of a campaign of its type. I still don't find the writing engaging. I still don't find the universe engaging. I wasn't grabbed by any of the, any of the plot developments. But again, those are all the things that are subject to, 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 to change. We need a Dragon Holt slash Vengeance merge, Mark, where the yeah. story is fantastic. And then we have the Vengeance Fate Forge combat, which is super dynamic, fast engaging while it's happening. Absolutely. That would be a great system. If it is your suggestion that more campaign games need the quality of writing found in the Legacy of Dragonhold, I cannot help but agree. I think Nikki Valens and their writing team needs to collaborate with all these people that do really, really good quick combat designs. I'm particularly pushing for David Thompson. I think Gordon Kaleo would be another great collaboration. Uh, I think they should be involved in all of these things. But nobody listens to me, so it's okay. Not even you listen to me. What was that? Yeah, exactly. So I agree with you that the development in terms of changing up the combat dynamics has been perhaps slower than I would ideally like, but it has been elaborating on a theme somewhat. So it's tricky. The core combat remains engaging, but I am deeply suspicious of campaigns. You are too, but in different ways and to a lesser extent. And those are the elements that are still very much in flux. But I can, it is It is absolutely the case that the combat engine that we know and love from Vengeance has been developed in an interesting way and to accommodate a campaign system. And that, I think, is what we're in a position to say about Fate Forge, Chronicles of Khan, designed by Gordon Kalea and to be put out by Mighty Boards with crowdfunding later on. You and I got to play a game called Ice Flows and Foes. So the maps were true, Mark. Out there be dragons. And I guess out in the north, it just drops off into nothing. <laughs> but that's where the, the, the key whaling hunting is to be done, apparently. But they aren't even whaling. They're, they're hunting seals. The whales, yeah. So <laughs> you set up, is it is it supposed to be the North Pole or the South Pole? I don't even know. Uh, probably the North Pole. Okay. So <laughs> you're setting this up. In the center, there are these ice flows, then there are seals, then there are hunters, and then there's this ring of whales around the hunters, which perversely over the course of the game serves as a protection. It's it's strange. But anyway, go on. So it's very Kabuto Sumo-like. It's a dexterity game where you sort of Niagara style, you put the board on the lid of the box. So it's got this, it's a big ring board, it's a circle board. So it's a big drop off and then you populate it with all these flat pieces of cardboard with uh, meeples on them, sort of maybe to help with weight. So if like just one edge sort of goes over the edge, it might will teeter them off more than usual. Maybe that's what it's for. Maybe it's just visual. Who knows? And then you can proceed to start sliding these icebergs onto the board in attempt to get uh, boats and or hunters to drop off the edge. Yes, because this is a sort of Captain Planet themed protecting nature version, which is why the whales serve as a protective ring around the whalers, around the hunters rather, who are not even hunting the whales. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Niagara, because I was actually going to bring up Niagara. Because if a game is going to be resting on physical gimmicks, the gimmick, I think more or less has to work 100% of the time or not be particularly relevant to gameplay. So a number of people have been playing Niagara, the, the Days of Wonder game from about 15, 20 years ago where you're pushing plastic discs, would report that it would fail, that it wouldn't work quite right. Not a problem, a little nudge, and then it'll work fine. Dexterity games, you can't really do that. So, so, so when there were seams in the board of Ascending Empires and the flicking didn't work quite right, 
big problem. And more than once, it was two or three times, which I think is two or three times far too many, we had problems in ice flows and foes whereby things would get trapped against the seams of the board, or things would buckle such that the tiles would stack on top of each other. Two things that we never encountered in games of Kabuto Sumo because the discs are wood and because the board doesn't fold. And in point of fact, I would also add that Kabuto Sumo has that excellent ramp up upon which you slide your pieces, and Ice Flows and Foes could probably do with that. Aside from those issues, I thought Ice Flows and Foes was a very good multiplayer take on something along the lines of Kabuto Sumo. I prefer the theming of Kabuto Sumo. I mean, Insect Pro Wrestlers, what is there not to like? But I do think that in terms of multiplayer dynamics, Ice Flows and Foes worked surprisingly well, absent, as I say, those occasional physical problems. So Ice Flows and Foes is designed by... Keith Mice and Dennis Merckx. And published by Keep Exploring Games. We played a game of Sentinels of the Multiverse. We did. We streamed it even. We even you wanna, streamed you it. You want to watch us play it? Go to our live channel on YouTube and you can watch us play Sentinels of the Multiverse. The original version. Not this uppity... Not quite. Re rethinking well, version. Rethinking... <laughs> Don't worry, there's no thinking in Sentinels of the Multiverse. No, this is the revised edition, right? Because there was an edition published in 2011. Very shortly thereafter, there was a revised edition in 2012. So technically, this is still just the revised edition. True. As opposed to the remastered edition? I can't remember. I'm not getting this game for the third time. So I'm not getting the new edition. No, <laughs> certainly not. Just slight, slight wording problems and a little bit upgraded art. Not that big a deal, I don't think. So I think well, we, the version we have is just fine. Well, especially since we, we're already invested. We have the entire system in the revised edition. Times so. two, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, it was great. Great as usual. Uh, so the variability in Sentinels of the Multiverse is off the chart. The number of heroes you can choose, then you get a random environment that totally changes up the game, and then you choose a random boss, of which there are a ton as well. doesn't even need to be random. You can pick if you want. Yeah. I, I really like the conceit of the theming of Sentinels of the Multiverse, which I don't know that we've ever uh, mentioned, because it's a com fake comic books canon, and most comic book canons take the multiverse seriously. The official line of Sentinels of the Multiverse is that every gameplay session is canon. Every gameplay session has happened in the Sentinels of the Multiverse universe, and maybe there are fake comics that would have covered these fake events or not. The level of kayfabe on the part of the designers when they're talking about this comic book universe is truly impressive, and sometimes it even gets confusing. It's like, wait, have you actually published comics about this? The answer is no. There have been a small number of comics, but not for the majority of the things they've discussed. But they start talking about, well, you know, they switched different editors, and then there's this other comic book line that got canceled, and what have you. Oh, geez, it's really, really daunting. Sentinels of the Multiverse for us is one of those games that for everyone in our core group, they've all played it dozens of times. No one's going to turn it down, and everyone finds it a welcoming homecoming experience. It's just one of our preferred go-to games. It's a su I'm surprised it's actually been as long as it has been. I attribute it to the infrequent participation of Dewey uh, as to why we haven't been playing more of it lately. But it is absolutely the kind of thing that will hit the table every year or so at a minimum and we'll always have a great time doing so. Yeah, I always like how the different, either new or how an environment interacts with a boss that we hadn't seen before or how certain heroes can down a boss or get destroyed by a boss that you wouldn't think of normally. Oh, yeah. Balanced, it's not. <laughs> I, I've commented before that Street Masters, although ripping off the Sentinel system almost wholesale, does a better job of keeping things in line. You don't enter, you don't get some of these degenerate uh, or overpowered situations. In Sentinels of the Multiverse, you absolutely do. Unfortunately, the most common manifestation of that is a boss that completely neuters a particular hero's ability to do their cool thing. That is an unfortunate consequence of the way the variability works, and it is my least favorite aspect of Sentinel of the Multiverse, but it is not one we've encountered in some time. Yeah, we almost had it in the game that we just had, where there was the, the villain had this ability that did a huge thing when there was a bunch of environment cards out, and the environment we had put out a huge number of cards. Luckily, that card didn't come up while we were playing, or else I think we would have been destroyed. I, I, I think you misunderstood my point. I'm referring more to cards like the one that Omnit we played against Omnitron. Omnitron has a card that said all hero equipment cards get discarded. If any of us had equipment-dependent heroes, like, for example, Wraith, that's not a fun combination. No. Because you need the equipment to get going, even worse for characters like Absolute Zero. 
the the interaction you're talking about just meant that it would have done an incredibly powerful attack, but it wouldn't have neutered our no, ability. No, no, I wasn't. Things. I wasn't commenting on what you had said. I'd bring it. Oh, why would you comment on something I, I said? That would up, that would be interacting. Bringing up that would something like completely a give and take new. Between your, oh, okay, I know. okay. Yeah. All right. And that's Senna's Multiverse, published by Greater Than Games, designed by Christopher Bedell, Paul Bender, and Adam Ribataro. Lastly, for me. I've been playing a whole bunch of Santorini designed by Gord and put out by Roxley Games. It is a fantastic two-player game. Don't let anyone tell you different. It's much like... Much like these Why other are you games. staring at me that way? <laughs> I, like, I wouldn't say different. Much like these other games that you know say they can play more than two, like sort of like a Niroshima Hex, this is a game that is best at two. I personally like just the standard basic Santorini, but there are all sorts of heroes and gods and lesser gods and golden fleeces and all of these things you can add in that will mix it up and make it a little interesting, but just base Santorini looks gorgeous, sort of like an abstract, try to get your meeples to the third level before anyone else can, blocking people. Love everything about it. Santorini. And I played it on a, a, on the computer, Mark. It has, there's a platform. I'm not going to say its name. They've, they've lost their last chance. (laughs) (laughs) This episode is brought to you by the spring cleaning champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below the waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice, it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. <clears throat> that brings us to the news and why it doesn't matter. On the topic of pale, <laughs> I say jokingly, so Chip3 Games sent out a whole bunch of swords to a bunch of content creators online. Now, I will have more to say about this on Bloat. I will reserve most of my comments on this for Bloat, the Patreon-only show where Mark blathers on about things. I will point out one thing here, though, for a general audience. For years, for years, Walker, I have been wishing that board game media would start adopting some of the standards and practices of the media of book reviewers, film reviewers, TV reviewers, video game reviewers, what have you. This, where producers send gifts to reviewers, not what I had in mind. (laughs) Because previously, that was not a thing that typically happened in our industry, but happens all the time in other industries. Like, here, have this commemorative statue. Here, have a weird plaque. Have this weird bit of nothing that is only available to reviewers that we send because we like them or we want them to like us or what have you. We didn't used to do that in the board games industry. 
Uh, but apparently now we do. So I guess be careful what you wish for. I've wanted board game media to act more like other media, and now it's happened a little bit. Maybe they have a lot of burn cycle to move. <laughs> and the only bit of news for me, I hope everyone's prof- properly caffeinated. Guess what, Mark? The new Vidal Serta Uno Tool collaboration has been announced for this year. Inventions. Evolution of Ideas. Maybe they should read that title. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a Vidal Serta game. Does it really? <laughs> That's designed and uh, drawn by uh, Eno Tool. I, for one, am shocked. Heroescape update. We have another Heroescape update. Heroescape 2022. <laughs> I predicted that Heroescape was going to be available through Hasbro's crowdfunding program, uh, program, and it has been confirmed that Heroescape, the new Heroescape Age of Annihilation, will be distributed through HasLab, which is the Hasbro crowdfunding platform, which I have used once before. Because I am a man-child who has far too much enthusiasm for Transformers, I will say no more about what I have done on HasLab because it is a subject of deep shame and personal embarrassment and also joy for me in my deepest secret places. So that's how Heroescape is going to be distributed. We've gone from Target and Toys R Us and Walmart (laughs) all the way to Hasbro's private crowdfunding platform, such as the way of things. It is the way of the world. I'm just... I will be here to give you more Heroescape news. As it emerges. Finally, Mind Clash Games, on the topic of going to and from crowdfunding, has announced that they are going to be starting distributing games outside of crowdfunding models. Direct-to-retail is is going to be a game called Astra. They are going to be producing some slightly more market-friendly, accessible, approachable games. Astra is a game about spotting stellar constellations and writing on cards with dry erase markers. I'm always down to write on cards with dry erase markers. And I am keen to see what Mind Clash Games does in the future, because despite some of the recent releases, I'm still very much a fan of their overall design philosophy, even if this particular design is not being designed by Richard Amon and Victor Peter, but rather by some new designers. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the topic of the week, which is efficiency euros. Mark, I, I, I try to look this up. Uh-huh. It, it's not... This the, I had an article that said there's only seven types of board games. Efficiency oh Euro is not one of them. Okay. <laughs> I realize that classification... So there's, there's, there's worker placement. Okay. There's co-op. Wait, there's, what? There's, there's deck builders. There's area control. Okay. Legacy. Uh, wait, hold, hold so, on. So, hold social on. deduction. Wait, 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 whoa, slow down. And, and then there's combat. This article said so. So bluffing games don't exist, nope. auction games nope. don't exist, positional nope. abstracts don't exist. Chess is not a game. It's just these seven games, these seven types. Chess is not a game, Raw is not a game, Tigers and Euphrates is not a game. We can just put them into these categories. Uh, Raw is probably what, deck builder maybe? <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay. I, as you know, I don't want to get bogged down into definitional things. I'm not trying to establish uh, a firm definitive class with rigid boundaries, This is a topic, Efficiency Euro, that I've thrown around a number of times when talking about other games. And so I can talk about primarily what it means to me, and and Walker can talk about what it means to him. This is not semantically compositional, first of all. A term is semantically compositional when the two terms defined on their own separately will tell you everything you need to know about the term when it's... So just because it's a game with efficiency in it and it's a Euro doesn't necessarily mean that it's an efficiency Euro, especially since if you want to abstract it away, being efficient in gaming is usually a good way to get where you're trying to go in terms of being competitive. So so setting that aside, here's the analogy. I Actually, this is the perfect analogy. It's like golf. Golf is basically like an efficiency Euro. In that, You need to get to a certain goal. Everyone's going to get there. It's just a question of how fast you do it. And perhaps very importantly, how well your golfing buddy does has zero to do on your success or failure. So golf is the sports ball equivalent of an efficiency euro. That's what I'm getting at. So to to give a couple of examples of recent games we've reviewed that have been efficiency euros, I think in a classic mold, Space Station Phoenix, I think is about as clear you can get as an efficiency euro. It is purely about efficiency. Take as few turns as possible to get income. You want to pump those those goals, not necessarily the end goals. It's not necessarily your job to finish, but it's your job to get as many points as you can during the time period of the game itself. Dice Realms as well, radically different kind of game, but in case of Dice Realms, just, well, you've got these resources, just get there as fast as you possibly can. 
Dominion as well, since Dice Realms and Dominion are basically the same kind of thing. Though That's roughly what I'm talking about. Relatively minimal player interaction, where action efficiency is key, and it's le- arguably less about things like resource management and more about speed to get to purpose. Does right. that make sense? Yes, that okay. makes sense. And right. that, was that the page that you were on? Pretty well. My cool. my thought was more, it was like uh, where you keep wanting to do that one thing before you do this other action. Yes, that, you, that is definitely you, a part you, of it. You yes. want to make this action more powerful. Well, it's, well yeah. I can't, I can't yep. do this yet because I, wa- I want it to do this. So I'll do Absolutely. this first and I can't do that until I do this. And I can't do this because that's suboptimal. So I'll have 100%. to do these 10 other things and then this whole cascading. So it's like a planning ahead. Yep. To make things go the way you want. And indeed, I think that feeds into one of the other ways that you can identify, not that it's particularly important to classify these things again, but just to get at a certain class of game. Will strategy articles on these games include things like canned openings? Right? Right. If yes, maybe it's an efficiency euro. That certainly implies, like, I mean, obviously chess is not an efficiency euro, but canned openings in chess don't tend to go, like, 10 to 15 moves deep. If you read some of those hardcore scythe openings, holy crap, they go to like 10 to 15 moves deep. It's like, get to the factory in however many turns. And the Rusviets can do it two to three turns faster than these other schmokes. It's like, yeah, that that's a thing you can do. I mean, read the read and write those kinds of articles. That's not a kind of thing we can that that we do because we are, of course, proud, filthy casuals. Another another one would be games that have set number of turns as well. The ones we've talked about do not have set turns, but when there's a set number of turns and a set number of actions you're going to have during the game, it seems almost like there's a solvable puzzle there. It gives you that feeling that that there is sort of this op- optimal path that you can find through either, you know, multiple plays or, you know, the right card draw or if other players do certain things and there's this key puzzle that you could find, that you could figure out. For me, it depends a little bit on what the end game condition actually is. If it's a fixed number of turns, you're absolutely right. That that lends a degree of stability to the rhythm of what's going on and can lead to the sense of I'm just planning my own efficiency engine over here. But if the the end game condition can be variable, and I don't think it necessarily undermines that very much. Like for example, the end game condition of Space Station Phoenix is ultimately variable, but it's not really the kind of thing that significantly dislodges you from your rhythm. You're just going as fast as you can to generate as many points as you can. Whether that happens in ten rounds or twenty, it matters a little bit, but it it's not really I think going to change the overall contours of things. Yeah, the the usual only player interaction there are in games that were that we're talking about is usually worker blocking or, you know, I took that tile before you did. Yes. That's, that's the, usually the. Now, s- and sometimes blocking like that can be hugely consequential. Like for example, a game that I would never include on a list of efficiency or is something like barrage. The amount of blocking involved in barrage, both in terms of worker placement and in terms of the map, even with the expansion is non-trivial. And so, yes, it pays to be efficient in Barrage, absolutely. As I say, in almost any game involving resources, even games involving combat, it pays to be efficient. But I don't, in my head, associate Barrage with that kind of phenomenon because of how interactive it is. It could be also because you don't get any more workers. Because if you just switch over to a game like Agricola or Converna, there's the same kind of blocking. But because you can eventually get more workers and sort of manipulate the gears that your actions will become more and more powerful. I think that those do fall into that category. Mm. Well, definitely more so. I'll definitely grant you on a spectrum. Agricola and Caverna are definitely further along. Let me put it this way. The sensation of looking at that pile of wood in Agricola and saying, am I really going to take it at six or do I hope that I can wait to next turn and take it at nine? Those are the kinds of considerations that you're not going to find in your more slightly more, in my mind, classic efficiency euro. And so I'm, this is not a yes or no thing. This is not a binary distinction, but it's one of the reasons why I would say that Agricola and Caverna are less of this category, less ideal archetypes of this category than something like Dice Realm, Space Station, Phoenix, Dominion, games of that elk. And indeed to, to, to sort of demonstrate, and we can get more into substantive critique and evaluation of games like this after having, uh, articulated the contours of its class. Uh, to my mind, a really illustrative example of how you can go on a spectrum is some of the work of Matt Gertz, one of my favorite Euro designers. So you have a game like Antica. Antica, very, very much like Scythe, actually, feels very, very much like an efficiency Euro, except when it doesn't. And that is to say, you're involved in this dance of efficiently man- manipulating your actions 
and manipulating your resources and the tempo of your actions until somebody starts aggressing up on your borders. And now suddenly you've got this problem. Do I deal with this person? Do I step aside from this dance of efficiency to smack them in the face? Do I hedge my bets and do a little bit of both? Do I retrench? Do I just take the risk and keep doing my own thing? Those trade-offs, by the way, I find delicious. It's one of the reasons why I adore Antica so much. It's one of the reasons why I enjoy Scythe as much as I do. And then you can go on a little bit of a spectrum. Then you have a game like Concordia, right? And that's the thing I was going to bring up. Absolutely. Is that games that that where you have to take that big reset action, you know, getting set up for that, getting ready right. to, you know, pull the cards back or getting ready to build all of the buildings and making sure your guys are spread out and you have all the resources you need when you have that one big action that you get to do. Absolutely. It's a, it, it's one of the hallmarks of your efficiency heroes. The, the, the sort of quote-unquote wasted turn where you don't get to do a whole heck of a lot. It's one of the things I really didn't like about Space Station Phoenix. It's one of the things that Concordia does slightly better, I think, in that sense. But again, in Concordia, most of the nudging you're going to get that distracts you from your efficient goal of hoovering up all these cards and putting out all these colonies is occasionally your colony is going to be a little bit more expensive because an opponent got there first. Occasionally a card is going to disappear from the market when you wanted to get it. So a little bit more pure in the sense of you looking at your own efficiency. And then there's Navigador, which similarly is his game about Portuguese uh, colonialism. There's this market element where you can just stay in your lane and try to pump your own efficiency, but the market fluctuations off to the side are there tempting you very much like the military aggression of Antica to deviate from that pattern. So it's very much an efficiency hero, except for those times when it's tempting you not to be. Now contrast this with another game by Matt Gertz, and I could talk about Matt Gertz games all day. In fact, one of the reasons why I started the podcast was I could talk about the, the, the designers that I really like. Then there's Imperial, which is not a, an efficiency hero at all. You have your efficiency considerations with respect to how to manipulate the rondel and v- valuing your own money, but the problem is the map position is so dynamic. The value of what a stock is worth is so dynamic. It's way beyond a simple market consideration like Navigador. Just Chinese bonds could be the strongest thing in the game or the weakest thing in the game based on what happens on the on the military aggression and the investment choices made by other players. So it has some of the same trade-offs of these other designs, but in a radically different dimension. And so I think it serves to articulate how it's really not what I'm pointing at when I'm pointing at games like this. Yep. I love that's that feeling, the constant pressure of knowing that you can do a more efficient action and knowing when you just got to pull the plug and say, well, I'm just going to do it anyway. Yep. So I was thinking of a game like Clash of Cultures where every action you do can be modified. You've got this giant player board with 50 different cubes that can go in it that will make all of your actions better. It's like, well, which path am I going to take? Or, you know, where am I going to cut corners? Where am I going to, you know, decide what I'm going to do for this game? Yes. Trade-offs like that are of a very particular sort. And I generally prefer when those trade-offs are as a result of other players' choices. So when I'm considering my path of the next two to three turns, and it's purely a function of, well, do I want to stop and invest and research this particular tech? I find personally that inferior to a question of like Antica or Navigador, where it's like, well, I have now been offered this opportunity or this challenge by virtue specifically of another player's action. Do I wish to now switch gears to respond to that, to counter it, to crush it, whatever, whatever it happens to be. And although the trade-off is fundamentally the same, I just prefer it when the input is provided by other players. It feels better to me. It feels like I'm engaged in a more social action. It also makes me feel like the game is going to feel very different based on subsequent playings. This is one of my key problems with efficiency euros, personally as a gamer. When I play an efficiency euro and I identify, and it's like one of those classic cases, Space Station Phoenix was a great example of this, I typically want to play them about one and a half times. And that's about it. Usually by right around the end of the second play, I'm like, uh, I've seen this before. This is just a question of, can I get, can I churn the puzzle harder? Can I get the extra nth point out of this particular interaction before the game ends? That doesn't motivate me as a gamer the way it used to. No, well, that's why when you have games like uh, Feast for Odin, where they have so many different paths that you can take, different ways to get victory points, different ways to do things. Uh, Gaia Project, so many different things that you can, you know, deviate during your gameplay, these are games that excel in this type of field. Those are exact, those are in point of fact, exactly the kind of games that I were thinking of in terms of games that avoid falling into that pitfall hardcore. So Feast for Odin can give you a very gentle push. Now it's not as much as we would like. This is again, one of my criticisms of Feast for Odin, but the blocking provided by other players, workers 
and or your profession cards that you pull give you enough of a nudge to say, hey, maybe this is going to be a more raid-heavy game than it's going to be a whale-heavy game, or maybe you want to set a few more snares than you're normally accustomed to because they're, 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 they look better this time. And that, I think, is a great way to avoid some of the classic pitfalls. Just It doesn't have to be a huge deal. It doesn't have to be an army at your border the way it is in Scyther Antica. It could just be a subtle nudge. Uh, Hallerta does this to a lesser extent, again, by virtue of the cards that come in. Some degree of incentive doesn't have to be random, but it can be to let you explore more of the game space. Now, Hallertau, to compare to Feast for Odin, I think does a less good job of it because in Hallertau, it's less sandboxy. At the end of the day, Hallertau is basically, will always be more of an efficiency puzzle because you're just throwing resources at either cards or at your craft house to get points. It's just a conversion engine where you're stuffing things in as fast as you can and as hard as you can. This isn't a solid criticism. As I said, you know, it gives you a bit of a nudge to vary things up, but I think Feast for Odin does it better. Agreed. It's going to go all the way back to, because uh, there's two games that sort of do it, where we talked about you have that big sort of wasted turn, or even quite the opposite, that one huge turn. And I think Corrosion did a great job of that, where you're laying out your workers, and you're trying to st- sort of stay in the round, sort of like Gaia Project, sort of like Great Western Trail. You're sort of moving along the road, trying to manipulate your deck the best you can, so when you do that big cash-in at the end, and I think those games do that particular thing very well. I haven't played Corrosion. Oh, you never got to play it? No, no. So I won't go into it. Corrosion is a very interesting game. Because <laughs> it, it does have that. You have this hand of, of workers and you're putting them out on this wheel and then you have to make that call when you're going to turn the wheel and it work, and it starts to spin all the the motors that you've put in on that particular part of the wheel. And, you know, it, very interesting, very very cool game. One of the things that, and I think this is entirely independent of the classification, Sometimes you can get that feeling of sameness from Euro Efficiency Games, where every turn feels more or less the same. You're just getting these marginal incremental points, a point here, a point there. There's nothing inherent to the structure that needs it to be that way. You do get those big turns in Dominion. You do get those big turns, it sounds like, in Corrosion, where important, interesting things happen. And so I would definitely prefer all things being equal, just again, to give the game a sense of tempo and rhythm that big, interesting things still get to happen. There's nothing inherent to a Euro-efficiency game that precludes that from happening. Now, there's some, just in terms of... of Again, to, to, to illustrate more of the contours, there's some games that are really, really close to Euro efficiency games, but I wouldn't put them in that category. One of them is Sidereal Confluence. If Sidereal Confluence didn't have negotiation, it would be the driest cube conversion thing ever. Because cube conversion is a classic hallmark of a lot of Euro designs, be they Euro efficiency games or otherwise. But Sidereal Confluence is all about, you know, market manipulation and the, the pleasant collusion of dealing with other players. And, and for that reason, you cannot just have your head down and focus on efficiency in that sense. Now, if you then want to broaden the definition, definition of efficiency to include efficient trading with neighbors. Sure, fine. I'm not going to quibble about semantics, but that's just to illustrate my point. When I was looking into this, Mark, I thought I had an interesting idea because we have some of these worker placement games in these efficiency uh, euros where a lot of the spaces are overpowered. And if the same person got to use them over and over again, then then the game would be broken. And I find it interesting that the designers sort of like just leave it up to the players to sort of balance the game out, to stop other players from taking those spots or those abilities or, you know what I'm saying? I assume you're talking about Jade. Jade? No. <laughs> <laughs> we know we know that Jade is alive. Jade is alive. I'm talking about more like Agricola or okay. those things, you know, just, you know, there's, it's built, it's baked into the system that players will not be able to take the same actions over and over again. Sure, I think that's more of a function of things like worker placement games. There was a feeling, especially in the mid-aughts, you know, the era of things like Stone Age, things like Agricola, although whenever I mention Stone Age, the Stone Age stands come out of the woodwork to accuse me of not knowing anything about Stone Age. There was generally a feeling that the action spaces didn't have to be balanced and that things like turn order spaces could balance, could could solve that, ultimately shaking it out. I don't know that that's necessarily a feature of all of these uh, efficiency-type games. I think it's more of a worker placement issue. We haven't, we haven't even talked about Hansa Tatanica. I don't know that it qualifies. Well, I, I'm, I put it in the same sort of category as a, like a scythe or, you know, games where you're like sort of – you're trying to efficiently uh, empty out your player board, right, to get more abilities, to get better actions, I, to get I hear more you. Stuff. So, th- so, okay, so there's the bootstrapping, yes – 
there's the I, I don't know about efficiency efficiently emptying out your player board because that's just like saying you want to efficiently try to win at that point it becomes vacuous and not particularly meaningful. There are times when Hanzo Teutonica feels slightly more like an efficiency arrow, but then I think it feels less like Hanzo Teutonica. You know, when one player is running away with the game and they've got that root that they keep pumping over and over and over again, and they improve it by selective upgrades and they improve it by cashing in those plates at the right time. I don't think that that's really representative of play. There's so much blocking and there's so much consideration of what everyone else is doing. Seldom do I feel like efficiency is the primary operant condition. To my mind, one of the hallmarks of an efficiency euro, and some people would say this about all euros in general, but I think they're wrong, is if there's a certain threshold of player interaction, it can't be that category of thing. And for me, the fact that you can't be left alone to just manipulate your own roots is what precludes Hansa Teutonica from falling into this classic category. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being too restrictive. Maybe maybe a Clans of Caledonia would be a better example than like a Scythe, like a Clans of Caledonia, sure. your player board. Maybe that's a better example. Yeah, Clans of Caledonia, very much like Terra Mystica, very much like Gaia Project. There is player interaction, but mostly you're manipulating your resources to just pump things on your own as 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 fast as you can and get as far as you can into those conditions. I remember back in the day, this is going to be me uh, grousing about things and, and remembering back the good old days, so so I'm, I'm, I'm warning you in advance. I remember back in the day when most efficiency engine euros were just grafted onto, sometimes clumsily, sometimes elegantly, to an auction mechanism, where every other game was, first we auction things, and then you do actions. I'm thinking Princes of Florence, I'm thinking Goa, I'm even thinking Power Grid, right? Where turning your resources into points was more or less a straight efficiency puzzle. But it always followed on distributing those resources through an auction mechanism. And so you could never be left purely on your own. And it was a great way to make sure that it was there was at least some point of contact. And well, it mixed up the formula just enough. Well, that, I think that, like I said, it falls back to the thing where it, it, it leaves it in the hands of the players right. to sort of balance out the system. Yes. Auction games do that explicitly. I think worker placement games do that implicitly. I think some other games do it in, in, in a variety of different ways. And I just think about how dull... Goa, Princes of Florence, Power Grid would be if you just ripped out the auction straight from its guts. And then I start thinking about some of the modern Euro designs we play, and I start thinking they look awfully an awful lot like that. And it makes me a bit sad. Whatever happened to auctions? Auctions used to be everywhere, Walker. It's true. And now it's so seldom what, like, Furnace. Furnace auctioned things off, and they're like, ooh, auctions, I remember these. <laughs> it's true. Well, we've talked about a lot of games, but... Do you know who doesn't do efficiency euro? I have, I have, uh, do you know a Reiner Knizzi game that is efficiency euro? Because oh, people, oh, people, are gonna, people are going to people are going to say that almost any game can be defined as an efficiency. Of euro. course, of course. But, but that's the trite. But, but, tell, but tell me a, a Reiner Knizzi game that can be identified that way. Uh some of his games, if you stripped the auction element out, right? Like <laughs> if you wanted to say like Amun Ray without the auctions, but then that's not really Amun Ray. Maybe. Um, no, but you're right. I think you're absolutely right. One of his, one of his co-designs, like which stone you could say is definitely sort of an efficiency sort of Oh, you're right. Game. Sorry, you're right. It's true. But, but I mean, but as we comment, like... as we commented when reviewing Witchstone, whether you love it or hate it, it doesn't feel very much like a Reiner Knizia no, game. No, that's what I mean. It was a, yeah. it was a co-design, and it's one of the newer ones. But no, that's 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 a really good point. And I guess this goes to show, like. I haven't really gone into a whole lot of detail why, I hope. I haven't just been complaining about efficiency euros the entire time. I like auctions. I like interaction. I like the dynamism and play variability that comes from reacting to my opponents. I don't feel like saving, solving the same puzzle twice. I don't feel like going through the same maze more than once. Maybe a mild exception for Dungeon Scrawlers, but that's just me being irrational. And I often feel when playing these efficiency euros where I'm not going to get variability from player inputs and I'm just left with my own levers to pull in the most efficient order possible, I'm like, I already did this. I can do this better, but I mean, I'd rather try something with a little bit more engagement with my other players. And so that that's ultimately why I think that efficiency euros are great for one and a half plays. And I'm more than happy to try new ones. I love finding new systems. And I often very much enjoy the first playing. I'm just seldom particularly jazzed to go back for a second. Yeah, that's why I was trying to figure out why I wasn't putting Barrage on this list. And it was exactly like you said earlier. It was just too much player interaction, too tight, too awesome. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us to talk about why we think our category is meaningless and or why the very best games are efficiency heroes, or perhaps both, why not both, you can get in touch with us at sowronggamescom slash contact. You'll find all our contact information there. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Once again, thank you very, very much for spending time with us, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.